Cool. Well, welcome back, everybody. Happy New Year and happy Tolkien's birthday to you all. Uh, it's Tolkien's 126th birthday today. Uh, uh, he still hasn't he still hasn't uh, uh, beat the old Took yet. Uh, uh, it's always fun having Mythgard Academy on uh, Tolkien's birthday. Of course, last year Tolkien's birthday was on a Tuesday, and it was the day I started the Exploring the Lord of the Rings series. Um, uh, so we had our we had our our anniversary session for that last night, which was really fun. Um, almost out of the Barrow Downs, on our way on Ponyback now, out of, on, on our way out of the Barrow Downs now. Um, so um, anyway, yeah, it's like twelfty sixth. Yeah, Yana, I've seen a bunch of people trying to make jokes about that. Twelfty doesn't really roll off the tongue like eleventy does. Uh, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I'm not sure that one really works for me, uh, but anyway, uh, so um, uh, so yeah, yeah, to the professor, everybody. Oh, I have a drink of my tea here. Um, all right, so um, yeah, thanks, Druid's Fire. Yeah, we're getting ready for the uh, the winter storm here. My kids' schools uh, are all canceled already for tomorrow. Um, so uh we're we're ready just hoping we don't lose power uh, fortunately our class is tonight so uh uh i don't have a major broadcast tomorrow some signum stuff going on which i hope won't be disrupted but uh but uh no major broadcast for tomorrow so that's just as well probably hopefully if we lose power i'll have it back in time for some film in griffith on friday but um yeah anyway cool all right um Oh, is it Corita? Oh, how about that? Well, happy anniversary to Emily Austin. Uh, so, uh, so Sam and Rosie from Mythmoot last year having their first anniversary. How wonderful! That's great. Happy anniversary, Emily. Um, that's very cool. All right. Um, so let's get back to the Hitchhiker's Guide. I, I, sorry that you know our discussions are sort of disrupted here i was uh, i was away last week of course it was uh it was christmas week last week and next week i'm going to be away again because i'm going down to tabian texas next week uh so i'm going to be uh going to be giving some talks and visiting friends and then tax moot uh and, uh, on the weekend so uh, i'm looking forward to driving around Texas a little bit, visiting some people, and uh, uh, having a good time. So I'll be down in Texas next week, um, where there will probably be less snow. And uh, uh, anyway, so that, that'll be so, but but again, I'm sorry, we're going to be disrupted again. And so we'll come back for the week after that. Um, I've already penciled in uh, one extra class session, but I think that should be enough. I do want to make sure that we can get a class session on the original uh, BBC radio broadcast um, of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, so we'll definitely, uh, um, we'll definitely. Uh, do that uh, at the end. I don't want to push that out just because uh, I, I am surprise, surprise, drawing out the book discussion a little bit. Um, so, um, cool. All right. Um, excellent. Okay, so let us. Oh, actually, hang on, hang on. Before I get started, two quick and I almost forgot. Two quick announcements. 
Uh, and those are these are both uh, sort of immediately upcoming announcements, uh, both things that happen this weekend or the beginning of next week. So the first thing, our spring semester at Signum University starts in, in our Signum University, Signum University graduate program. Our spring courses begin on Monday. So uh, this is a, a, a great time if you still want to consider uh, auditing one of our classes, uh, sitting in on the discussion, you know, doing a discussion audit where you get to participate in the weekly discussions but don't have to do any of the tests or papers. Um, or if you want to uh, uh, want to audit one of our newer classes, um, or of course, anytime you can do our anytime audit uh, of uh, any of our older courses. Just wanted to encourage you to look at the, the courses that are running this term. Um, go to signumuniversity.org uh, and go to in the academic panel, our future courses, and you can see the ones that are coming up here for this spring. Uh, really, really fun classes. Uh, so I, I, I encourage you to look at those. Um, the second thing is MythMoot. So MythMoot is coming up in June, and uh, we have our early bird uh, pricing for the early bird registration that closes on Sunday, actually. Sunday, January 7th. So the uh, the deadline for the early bird registration is coming up uh, pretty quickly here. So I uh, would definitely urge you to... Uh, uh, to get to that quicker, sooner rather than later, uh, if you can. So, anyway, uh, that's gonna be uh, uh, that's gonna be awesome. So uh, I am so looking forward. We're gonna we have uh, John Garth and Douglas Anderson uh, and Mark Ockrand, two awesome Tolkien scholars and the inventor of the Klingon language. Uh, it, you know, I mean, come on, it's uh, it gets. Uh, uh, that's pretty cool, right? Uh, so uh, anyway, it's going to be great. Uh, so I hope you'll be able to join us at MythMoot. Uh, and again, you, if you go to signumuniversity.org, you'll see, you scroll down just a tiny bit, you will see the uh, uh, the link to the MythMoot information where you can see more. You can see the link for the call for papers. If you want to submit a proposal to read a paper or do a presentation, that would be even better. Lots of possible paper topics arising, both from our discussions of The Return of the Shadow and The Treason of Isengard, uh, you know, during the course of last year. And also, of course, uh, of The Hitchhiker's Guide and uh, The Dispossessed and other awesome books that we have done uh, recently. So uh, should be lots of opportunities, I think. Um, okay. So let's, uh, let's begin. Now, I called tonight's class Needlessly Messianic uh, because... So I'm thinking about our discussion from last time. Um, and... One of the things that I was noticing last time was this, what seemed to me a trend. Here I was sort of innocently continuing to pay attention to the narrator, right? Uh, and sort of the frame of the narrator and what's going on with the narrator and how that's being shaped over the course of the book. And I get kind of surprised last week, or two weeks ago, uh, by this other trend that I'd noticed that I hadn't really been thinking about previous to that, uh, which is this push towards the 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 mythic concept I, you know, it's one is tempted to say as 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 to say it as simply as sort of serious versus the silly right the sort of tension between the serious and the silly uh in adams but it, or at least i mean in the course of this story but it's 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 more than just that it's more than just serious versus funny it's um it was about the sort of the prompting of the mythic imagination 
Um, but the way in which that was, that kept getting undercut, uh, and specifically the narrator seeming to to kind of pull back from that um, uh, frequently, and we get some more of that. You know, so I'm, I'm, there were some other things I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk about. You may have noticed. Surprise, surprise, I didn't get through all my slides last time. Um, and I want to go back to the slides that I had planned to do last time that I didn't get through, the second half of last, last time's slides. Um, but I, I want to jump ahead a little bit, actually, thinking about the stuff that we were uh, in looking at this sort of the mythic unveiling of Magrathia last time, ending with Slarty Bartfast. Uh, I want to I jump forward to Deep Thought, uh, and the whole sort of deep thought situation uh, that we get here in these later chapters. And then I wanna, we'll go back and we'll um, resume some of the other things that I wanted to look at uh, before, specifically leading up to the whole sort of strange Zephod Bibelbrox subplot uh, in the last, you know, ten chapters or so. But, um, but as I say, we'll, we'll come back. We'll get to that. I want to start with deep thought. There are, of course, many problems connected with life, of which some of the most popular are, why are people born? Why do they die? Why do they want to spend so much of the intervening time wearing digital watches? Many, many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, whose physical manifestation in their own pan-dimensional universe is not dissimilar to our own, got so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life which used to interrupt their favorite pastime of Brockian ultra-cricket, a curious game which involved suddenly hitting people for no readily apparent reason and then running away, that they decided to sit down and solve their problems once and for all. Okay, now... Notice what we get here. First of all, uh, <laughs> do you think that sounds like you, th- you think that sounds like Calvin Ball? Uh, <laughs> a little bit like Calvin Ball, though. Uh, uh, it seems a little simpler than Calvin Ball, I have to say. Uh, but anyway, um, the once again we see the narrator at work here, right? In some ways, the narrator is is a little bit less intrusive, right? Um, here. But one thing that I, one thing that I would uh, point out, one thing that was really interesting to me about this passage, the lack of frame to this passage, right? This is the beginning of a chapter, and the previous chapter had just ended with conversation between Arthur and Slarty Bartfast. There was no, there was no, uh, you know, there's no segue. Right there's no frame. Um, we just shift from that to there are of course many problems connected with life. Many many millions of years ago, a race of hyper intelligent pan-dimensional beings. Right. So the narrator is telling us that first he makes this commentary, and you we know this is the narrator's commentary, right? Because it's going back to the commentary that the narrator made way back at the very beginning of the book, right? With the the the, the digital watch joke. Um, that uh, uh, that he was making before, and notice how that explicitly connects uh, the pandemon- the hyper intelligent pandimensional beings in question, right? Who are not exactly named here. Um, we don't learn where exactly they are or what their planet is called or anything. Um, but anyway, uh, it connects them with the Earth, right? Um, the whole digital watch joke. 
uh, is an Earth thing. So by, by I mean, I, on the one hand, again, like back to what I said in the first class, right? I know it's a running gag. I might just seem to be making too much of a running gag. But again, like the 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 running gag connects us back to where it was originally made, right? Where that joke was originally made in chapter one, where it was talking about. Uh, people and why people were unhappy for most of the time. People on Earth were unhappy for most of the time, right? Earth has these problems in which people were unhappy for most of the time, um, even those that have digital watches. So, okay, um, we start with this sense of notice again the same trend that I was pointing to at the very beginning of the book. On the one hand, we're asked to imagine that these people that we're talking about are both very different from us. I mean, they're pan-dimensional, right? Pan-dimensional. They're not only hyper-intelligent, right? I mean, that would be one thing. Um, but they're, they're not only hyper-intelligent, but they're pan-dimensional. Um, so what, they exist in every dimension at once? I don't even know exactly what that means. I mean, I, I, I can parse the word pan-dimensional, but I, I'm not sure that I can conceive of the word pan-dimensional and exactly what it means in connection with these particular beings. So those two words put together, hyper-intelligent and pan-dimensional, certainly suggest that these creatures, these beings, are way beyond humanity, Right. Uh, far greater and more vast in some sense uh, or other. Um, in all senses, perhaps, I suppose, because they're pan-dimensional. Um, and yet, even before we're told anything about them, we are invited to think about them in the same context that we were invited to, to think about humans, right? We're, we're invited to make that connection from the very beginning. We have this fundamental similarity. Um, humans have had these problems, right? The problems we have on Earth are that most people are, 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 are mostly unhappy most of the time, right? Um, and apparently so are the hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, and they have, uh, they have exactly the same sort of kinds of uh, uh, the kinds of problems that we have. And then, of course, we learn about Brockian Ultra Cricket, which sounds uh, of course you see what um, <laughs> one of the effects of their being pan-dimensional, apparently, is that we just apply prefixes like ultra to everything right? Like the desk is made of ultra mahogany. I have no idea what ultra mahogany means. Uh, the, uh, the leather, uh, on the desktop is ultra red leather, right? It's, 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 um, I guess it's like ultraviolet, but it's ultra red. Um, I, I don't even know. Um, so, uh, it, it, it's, They're very vaguely beyond humanity, right? And again, and I think that the, the, the vagueness is really kind of emphasized for me in the, you know, the, the sort of indiscriminate application of prefixes like ultra uh, to describe them, and yet describing them in wholly mundane terms, uh, and yet with, uh, with this little sort of pref, you know, uh, prefix, hey, I've never... I've never needed an adjectival form of prefix before. 
prefix prefixual prefixural uh pre prefixional <laughs> I like that Yana that's good prefixional prefixicated <laughs> no not prefixicated it makes it, I guess it it does sound like a prefix has happened to you right we uh, we could say that these words have just been prefixicated uh Arthur I suppose uh um Pref- prefixial, prefixial, yeah, yeah. Tony, that 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 fits the the kind of thing I was I was gonna say. I mean, what I, what I was gonna say. He just keeps making these prefixial gestures uh, towards the fact that they're pan-dimensional, right? When really uh, they're really quite uh, uh, quite quite mundane. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, so. But Brockian Ultra Cricket. Okay, so they play cricket, fine. Uh, but it's, it's not cricket, it's ultra cricket, right? But what's so ultra about it? Um, because, uh, you know, apparently it's just hitting people for no reason and then running away, right? That is a very unsophisticated game. Uh, and here again, I think we see a clear example of, again, as I said before, what, what I was talking about in that first class of sort of pushing in these two directions at once, right? Building this up and then kind of tearing it down. Hyper These are hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings uh, who are annoyed by the content, by the bickering about the meaning of life because it interrupts their game of whacking each other and running away, right? Um, which, you know, and like, who am I to say that that's not a perfectly intelligent game for a pan-dimensional uh, being to play? But it's certainly not what we might expect, right? Um, their society seems to be not demonstrably above human society in any kind of obvious or calculable way, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it is possible, Brian, of course, that it's, it's an extremely sophisticated game that the narrator simply doesn't understand. You can't rule that out, right? Um, now, obviously that's not the tone, because the narrator certainly feels confident that he understands it, right? Um, uh, even the fact that he calls it a curious game, right, is uh, a little... like this seems just a, just a touch of condescension there, Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but we don't see them, uh, we don't see them playing, you know, any kind of really complicated games like we might expect hyper-intelligent be- uh, beings to be playing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I want to sort of trace two different things going on here, Right? On the one hand, we get this build-up of this, uh, you know, many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings. On the one hand, we get where that sentence sounds like it's going, right, and where it actually ends up. Because, of course, keep in mind, that second paragraph is all one sentence, as we've so often seen, right, over the course of this book. Um, It... um, this seems like a very 
strange reason for them to accomplish or to attempt to accomplish what is really a very remarkable thing, right? A very a very mythic thing. They're going to they're going to solve the meaning of life, right? They're going to figure out definitively the meaning of life uh, to solve the ultimate, you know, to find the answer to the ultimate question. Um, oh, and the second thing I want to want you to keep in mind is this: uh, the fact that again, this is the narrator telling us this, right? Um, and um, breaking into the story of Arthur and Slarty Bart Bartfast in order to tell us this. Now you'll remember the second half of the story. Arthur experiences firsthand, right? It is Slarty Bartfast essentially who, through the medium of his sensotape, right, um, his recording of the event, um, is sort of the narrator, the narrator of the second part. But the first part is just told to us by the he he will tell us that Slarty Bartfast had told the story to Arthur, right? Um, but not, of course, that these were his words. Anyway, so what is their idea of solving the meaning of life, right? How do they approach this epic undertaking, right? This mythic undertaking. Um, Once again, in a way which pushes in both directions, right? Um, Oh, deep thought computer, he said. The task we have designed you to perform is this. We want you to tell us, he paused, the answer. The answer, said Deep Thought. The answer to what? Life, urged Fook. The universe, said Lunquil. Everything, they said in chorus. Deep Thought paused for a moment's reflection. Tricky, he said finally. That's uh, one of my uh, um, one of my favorite lines, actually. Tricky. Anyway. Um, So, once again, so you notice how this works, right? Um, on the one hand, they accomplish this great, this astounding feat, right? In order to achieve their epic mythic end, right? They are trying to solve the meaning of life for everyone because it's clear that it's going to be the meaning of life for everybody, right? They have the same problems you know, way up there in the pan-dimensional space that we do, right? Uh, you know, or we did, I guess, uh, down here on Earth. Um, so this is clearly going to be the answer for everybody. Uh, this is great. And they managed to build a computer, the most powerful computer ever built, in order to answer this question. This amazing accomplishment, right? And notice how we get... This is the day of the great on-turning, right? You know, so we get this whole sort of uh, uh, little uh, uh, build-up. It's the most powerful so far, right? He does call himself the second most powerful. Uh, We'll get to that. Um, As you can tell, of course, from my class title. Um, So again, on the one hand, they are setting out on this, this mythic quest for the ultimate answer to the ultimate question, uh, and they do so by building this, you know, uh, remark, you know, uh, this sort of pinnacle of all technological achievement uh, that has ever been accomplished by anybody in the universe so far. And, uh, 
and then they come to ask it the question, what was the whole point of doing it? Why did they labor to build the greatest computer of all time? And they just, they want the answer. The answer to what? Life. The universe. Everything. Right? Um, this, of course, and that's certainly tricky. Right? Um, it's clear even before uh, Deep Thought points it out, right, that they have no idea what the question is, right? We got the impression by the end of that sentence, right, uh, the, the, the sentence that introduced the, pan, the hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, before we got to the end of the question, um, even, you know, sort of on our way through uh, the Brockian ultra-cricket uh, semi-digression in that sentence, we got the sense that hyper-intelligent, though they may possibly be, they're not actually that involved, right? Um, they call their computer deep thought, which is a little bit ironic uh, in the sense that, or not exactly ironic, because the computer does indeed think deeply, but they make this computer called Deep Thought because Deep Thought seems to be exactly what they are wholly uninterested in doing themselves, right? Um, they don't have a question for which they're seeking an answer. They uh, just want to avoid thinking about it at all, and so they've built this other compu- this computer uh, to do it, right? Um, so... Once again, as in that first sentence, we see this great epic mythic undertaking really undermined from the beginning. So, okay, so the hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, these greatest and best of all, you know, historical beings who are going to solve once and for all for the entire universe the meaning of life, turn out to be not really actually very interested in it. It's just a distraction from whacking people and then running away, right? Um... They're extremely lazy. Uh, The most practical thing Deep Thought ever does is to make this suggestion to the philosophers, right? Uh, Who are complaining, they don't, they object to this. Um, n- notice the way that the philosophers' objections and the 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 horrible, um, the horrible uh, uh, threat of a worldwide philosophers' strike, <laughs> which I just love. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, it really emphasizes the fact that they, you know, even the the people who claim to have. Uh, uh, to have enormous, uh, enormously highly trained minds, right, uh, are clearly are clearly not very good thinkers, right? Um, yes, declaim deep thought. I said I'd have to. Th- oh, this is right after he said that it was going to take seven and a half million years. I said I'd have to think about it, didn't I? And it occurs to me that running a program like this is bound to create an enormous amount of popular publicity for the whole area of philosophy in general. 
Everyone's going to have their own theories about what answer I'm eventually going to come up with, and who better to capitalize on that media market than you yourselves? So long as you can keep disagreeing with each other violently enough and maligning each other in the popular press, and so long as you have clever agents, you can keep yourselves on the gravy train for life. How does that sound? The two philosophers gaped at him. "'Bloody hell,' said Magic Thighs. "'Now that is what I call thinking. "'Here, Vroom Fondle, why do we never think of things like that?' "'Dunno,' said Vroom Fondle in an awed whisper. "'Think our brains must be too highly trained, Magic Thighs.' "'Uh, can I just say... "'Uh, first of all, I didn't even know the joke about Magic Thighs "'until I was preparing the slides.' tonight. That is to say, because I, I, when you say it, <laughs> like, I, like I, I, I had no idea it was spelled this way, right? Um, the way that he's... That, because this joke is a visual joke, right? Magic thighs, that's a visual joke. Um, it's, it's a name which, when you first glance at it, you don't necessarily... Uh, it doesn't necessarily sound... looks particularly strange until you sound it out and then it's and then it's then it's really funny right um i just i just thought his name was magic thighs uh because i'd only ever heard the audiobook version of it uh so i i i I laughed when i saw the when i saw the spelling of it um and vroom fondle i think is again this it just uh, bo- both of them, but especially Vroom Fondle, uh, are uh, just such an, a, a wonderful, an, another wonderful example of Douglas Adams's uh, really, <laughs> really excellent sense of uh, 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 phono aesthetics. You know his phono aesthetic humor. Um, and yeah, Tom uh, McCarthy says it makes Slarty Bartfast sound downright proper. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, see, Stephen, that's the that's the that's the that's the joke, right? You know, Stephen says so. You know, what's the joke with Vroom Fondle? That's exactly what's so funny about it is that it's like nothing exactly, right? Uh, it's just a funny sounding name, which. Sounds about as salacious as possible. I mean, it sounds completely inappropriate. There's like, you know, sort of multiple layers of wildly inappropriate sexual suggestion, and yet nothing actually stated, no joke explicitly made, right? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's just, it's it's brilliant, right? And the way that he the, that he gives these names, right? These remarkably silly, uh, but also both of them like full of, you know, inappropriate sexual innuendo to these two professional philosophers, right? The two professional philosophers uh, who are Vroom Fondle and Magic Thighs. I mean, Lunquil and Fook uh, are are. I mean, those are pretty good comic names in themselves. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, anyway, um, it's, uh, 
<laughs> yes, I, I just I, I I think that those names are good. Vroomfondle is just it, I I may like that one even more than I like Slarty Bartfast. Not not quite. I mean the uh, actually including the word fondle. Uh, though again, I had no idea that he spelled it D E L, which makes it to me a little bit funnier. Um, but um, uh, anyhow, um, I. No, it's not quite as good as Slarty Bardfast. I still, I still hold out for that as my, uh, uh, as my, uh, as my favorite. And uh, oh, Karita, you're right. Vroom Fondle and Magic Thighs uh, would be a pretty good band name, actually. Uh, I like that. Um, anyway, uh, notice the level on which this conversation happens, right? Um, the protest brought in by the philosophers, the only people who do want to think about this, and all they're concerned with is their demarcation rights, right? They don't want their rights to speculate about eternal verities uh, to be trespassed. Um, So they're just, they're being litigious. They're not interested in, you know, so the only people who are kind of interested in the question, the ultimate question, uh, and who are not merely interested in uninterrupted Brockian ultra cricket turn out, in fact, to want to discourage the finding, you know, this, the mythic quest for the answer to the question, right? They want absolutely nothing to do with it. Because if, uh, if it were found, right, if this quest were achieved, then it would rob them of their livelihood. Until Deep Thought uh, tells them a way that they can turn this to their own financial gain, and keep themselves on the gravy train for life, in which case they are just in awe, right, of the, uh, um, of of this of this level of thinking, right? Their brains are too highly trained uh, to think of things like that, right? This is like the ultimate kind of thinking uh, that they could only, uh, you know, dimly aspire to. Um. So. Anyway, so we can, we can continue to see these things kind of pushing. You know, this is this is this passage is much more on the undermining, right, than on the building up. Um, but again, I think you can see the 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 sort of directions that I'm pointing to here. Um, then we get the disappointing answer to the question. We wait seven and a half million. Or they wait seven and a half million years. We don't have to wait quite so long. And uh, he, after that long and dramatic build-up, Deep Thought tells them that the answer is 42. It was a long time before anyone spoke. Out of the corner of his eye, Fook, and I love how the the distant, after like 40,000 generations or whatever it is, 75,000 generations, uh, their names are still Lunquil and Fook. They just spell it strangely now. So, like, the language has shifted. Uh, the sort of gesture towards the language shifting over uh, over seven and a half million years, and yet their names are still exactly identical, uh, which I think was I, I, I think was really fun. Um, anyway, out of the corner of his eye, Fook could see the sea of tense, expectant faces down in the square outside. We're going to get lynched, aren't we? He whispered. It was a tough assignment, said Deep Thought mildly. 
Forty-two, yelled Loonquill. Is that all you've got to show for seven and a half million years' work? I checked it very thoroughly, said the computer, and that quite definitely is the answer. I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question is. So, after seven and a half million years, the computer is able to tell them that this is this is clearly the clearly they didn't they did not have a question. They said they had a question uh, to which they wanted the answer. They talked about it as if it were a question. Can we get on to asking him the question? Then he says, right? But it's not a question. They don't have a question they want an answer to. They just want an issue. They don't want to. They, they they want to not think about this issue anymore, which is not at all the same thing, right? Um. Yeah. Let's go back. Going back to the beginning of deep thought here. This is them trying to cope. Uh, the original Fook and Lundquil, uh spelled more naturally, uh, or always spelled more like English, uh, trying to come to grips with the fact that he keeps calling himself the second most powerful computer in time and space. Contemptuous lights flashed across the computer's console. I spare not a single unit of thought on these cybernetic simpletons, he boomed. Boomed. I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me. Fook was losing patience. He pushed his notebook aside and muttered, This, I think this is getting needlessly messianic. You know nothing of future time, pronounced Deep Thought, and yet in my teeming circuitry I can navigate the infinite delta streams of future probability and see that there must one day come a computer whose merest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, but which it will be my fate eventually to design. Fook sighed heavily and glanced across to Lunkwill. Can we get on and ask the question, he said. Um... Yeah, and of course, for those of you who don't recognize the reference, uh, it's uh, it's John the Baptist, of course, that uh, Deep Thought keeps paraphrasing, right, uh, or adapting, really, um, a computer whose merest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, right, being a reference to John the Baptist saying that, uh, you know, the one comes after me, the latchet of whose shoe I am not worthy to unloose. Um uh, so yeah, that's uh, uh, it's he is he the computer is explicitly using messianic language, right? Um, like he is predicting the great computer that is going to come after him. Um, once again, notice we see the same pattern, right? Deep thought is trying to build up this epic anticipation, right? This mythic anticipation. I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me, right? Very portentous, uh, very ominous. And Fook, in particular, is having none of it, right? He doesn't, he doesn't care. Um, I think this is getting needlessly messianic, he says. Uh, and then he just sighs heavily. He doesn't say he rolls his eyes, but it's, it's, it's like he's rolling his eyes, right? And deep thought maintains his level, right? Um, he will not allow his uh, prophetic tone here 
um, his explicitly messianic tone uh, to be undermined, to be punctured by Fuchs' skepticism, by Fuchs' attitude, which is a lot like Ford's was at the revelation of Magrathea, right? That, that, that sort of naysaying voice uh, who wants nothing to do with that whole mythic approach to things. Um, and yeah, Brian, I, it is interesting, isn't it, that uh, Fook recognizes that language as messianic as if he were uh, himself aware of the story of Jesus and John the Baptist, um, which is odd, right? Um, yeah. Um, Okay, hang on. Somebody has a good question, but I'm waiting for GoToWebinar to reveal to me who asked it. It, it does this thing sometimes where somebody's comment will appear blank. It'll just put a blank spot. Like, I know that there's a comment there, but I can't actually read it. But if I right-click on it, it will put the it will show up the question in the box down below so I can see it. But I can't tell who asked it because it's still invisible. But then after a couple minutes, it'll pop in. So some person to be disclosed later is asking, uh, is Adams making fun of religion with this entire section? And, you know, when I read this book before, that's kind of what I assumed, you know, that he was just kind of making fun of the whole thing. But the more I've been, the more, as I've been reading this more, more carefully, I am much less confident of that. Or rather, again, I don't know what Adams's intention was. Um, but it's, that certainly does not seem to me uh, to be the purport of this whole section. Again, look at the look at the parallel between that mythic revelation of Magrathea, as we were talking about before, and the way that 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 mythic emphasis keeps getting undermined. Right, um, the way that we're, we're not quite allowed to settle in to that uh, that awe-filled and mythic view of things. And yet it also won't completely go away, right? That also is very uh, is very consistent. Um, David, it was David, I said, it just finally revealed to me uh, what it was. Um, I, uh, well, that's interesting, Mike. Mike is comparing it to the life of Brian. Maybe, in some ways... In some ways, that's complicated, though. That gets into a whole other discussion uh, that I think is beyond what we can talk about here. That is to say, I'd have to do we'd we'd have to do a bunch of analysis of the life of Brian in order to uh, make that comparison, and I'm not prepared to go there just now. Um, but it is it it, it is an interesting uh, um, uh, connection. Um, Anyway, like I said, David, my first reaction too was like, okay, so we're just you know, just kind of making fun of that, you know, using the 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 messianic stuff, sort of sort of tongue in cheek. Um, that is to say, I always thought that Fook was sort of the hero of this scene, right? That when he's like, when he kind of rolls his eyes, he's like, I think this is getting needlessly messianic, right? That Fook, who has no patience with this uh, messianic prophecy stuff, is the one who's like in touch with reality here, right? And that deep thought is the one that we're being invited to laugh at. Remember I was asking that in, again from the first class, like, who are we laughing at? Right? Whom, whom does the humor invite us to laugh at? That was my initial thought, 
but I don't find myself I, I don't find myself laughing at deep thought anymore. I find myself I find myself la- laughing at laughing at Fook. Um, uh, let's because uh, let's let's keep going. It um, at the end after the revelation of the answer, right? Um, and then deep thought says he can't calculate the question, right? Um, but so, but he, he can tell them who can. I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me, intoned deep thought, his voice regaining its accustomed declamatory tones. A computer whose merest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, and yet I will design it for you. He repeats verbatim the messianic joke, right? His John the Baptist shtick. A computer that can calculate the question to the ultimate answer. A computer of such infinite and subtle complexity that organic life itself shall form part of its operational matrix. And you yourselves shall take on new forms and go down into the computer to navigate its ten million year program. Yes, I shall design this computer for you, and I shall name it also unto you, and it shall be called the Earth. Fook gaped at deep thought. What a dull name, he said. Um, come back to the Earth bit, right? He elevates back to his declamatory tones, and the declamatory tones sound to me, and I might be wrong about this, the kind of thing it's hard to prove, right? But I think, and especially the, uh, it's the John the Baptist paraphrase that primarily uh, uh, does it for me, um, that he, that is deep thought, is deliberately imitating King James Bible diction, right? Um, And I shall name it also unto you, for instance, right? Um, that's the sentence that that sounds most King James or most pseudo King James. Of course, it's not good King James, but it's uh, it 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 it's amusingly evokes that kind of uh, that kind of level. Yeah, um, and then of course we get the traditional come down at the end, right? And it shall be called the Earth. And that is certainly sounds like a dull name at the end of that uh, at the end of that long and uh, impressive pseudo biblical uh, sort of paragraph. So here is deep thought speaking now, not only with the well, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Okay, I was about to say speaking not just like John the Baptist, but like God Himself. And then I'm like, oh yeah, you know, like a prophet, which kind of that's kind of a prophet's job actually is to deliver the word of God. And that's exactly what it sounds like. Deep thought is doing, right? Um, and you yourselves shall take on new forms and go down into the computer to navigate its ten million year program. And I shall name it also unto you. Um, the way that he shifts from his prophecy of there shall come a computer greater than I, right, whose, oper- and the, whose operational parameters, etc., etc., um, his prophecy, his prophetic vision, right, extends beyond that and encompasses them. That's a very prophetic, it's, 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 it's I mean, it, it's, this joke works really well, right? Because that's a very, 
biblical prophet move, right? To turn from, you know, and this shall come in the later days too, and I say unto you, you yourselves shall do this, right? Um, to Because remember, the, 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 uh, in the Bible, the prophet's job, the job of a prophet is not primarily to predict the future. That People talk about prophets that way, but that's not a prophet's job. A prophet's job is to convey a message. They speak for God. God they're God's messengers to the people. That's what the job of a prophet is. That's why the prophets are always saying things like, you know, thus saith the Lord, uh, and he delivers the message to the particular person for a particular Situation and apparently Lunquil and Fook, howsoever they spell it, in whatsoever generation they be, have been chosen. Right? They were chosen at birth. We were told by the other programmers or the sort of, you know, I don't know what legacy of programmers uh, over seventy-five thousand generations that uh, that that led to this. Um, but um, yeah. So okay. Um, so, David, David says he read this as deep thought, hamming, hamming it up and making fun of his inquisitors. I don't think, see, again, I thought so too, but I don't think so anymore. Two reasons why. One, I see no reason to think that deep thought does not take himself extremely seriously. I don't think he's going to ham it up about himself. Um, I see, I think we see now, it, his, his... Uh, I, he takes himself very seriously, right? He's got a big ego, um, and he seems to be, if anything, annoyed when he and his claims are not taken seriously. Um, now, he makes fun of the others, right? Um, but he doesn't make fun of himself. Um, so, so, again, I don't think that when he's talking about, you know, his ultimate... Destiny, his ultimate accomplishment, compared with which the calculation of forty-two is as nothing. Right, the greatest thing that he will ever accomplish is going to be designing this great. You know, he is going to be the one who who um, you know makes straight the paths of the great computer that is to come after him, and he seems to take that really very seriously. The fact that he reiterates the explicitly messianic language. After Fook, well, seven and a half million years after Fook uh, had objected to it, shows he's not—he's not changed. His, I mean, you could say he's making the same joke, but I don't think—I don't—I don't, I don't think he's joking either time. Um, could we be invited to laugh at Deep Throat? Of course we could. Um, is Deep Throat Deep Thought? <laughs> darn it! <laughs> is Deep Thought uh, inviting us to um, uh, to laugh at him? I don't think so at all. Um, so, yeah. I, I, and the prophecy... Here's the other thing, David, that I keep coming back to. The prophecy that he makes of them, right? That he delivers to them. And you yourselves shall take on new forms and go down into the computer to navigate its 10 million year program. That happens, right? I mean, that comes true. That's not a joke. It's not funny. He's he's not he's not making a joke. Um, uh, he's uh, uh, he's he's and and what's more, they are surprised, right? 
they seem to be sort of taken up, you know, just as uh, just as somebody who, again, like a biblical figure to whom the word of the Lord comes, and like Jonah, you know, being told to go to Nineveh, or you know, like Gideon being told to you know lead his puny, ridiculous uh, little army against the Midianites or whatever it was, right? Um, they're like shocked, like what? We're supposed to do what? And and they're like, you know, almost forcibly taken. So he's going to turn them into white mice, and he's going to put them into the program, right? Um, that wasn't their plan. That obviously, it wasn't their intention. They presumably just want to carry on with Brocky and Ultra Cricket. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Mike, it is interesting, right? You know, Mike is sort of pointing out uh, that. Uh, so some of you may remember, some of you may have been recently reminded during the Christmas season uh, that one of the foretold names of Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us, um, referring to the Incarnation. And uh, uh, so the idea that th- there is this, again, it's not about the Messianic figure itself, which is the computer, right? Um, but the... the um, you shall take on new forms and go down into the computer. There is something incarnational, right, in that whole uh, concept, right? Um, so yeah, the, the 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 parallel really kind of really kind of works there, and the whole story ends. The whole story ends on a. I mean, of course, it, and the very last note of the story is the joke about how dull a name the Earth is, right? But, um, um, uh, but yeah, Robert, they take on a they take on a humble form, right? Uh, and uh, and dwell among the people. Um, so again, I the more the more I read this section, I'm like, so hang on, kind of. So what what am I laughing at? Again, I mean, again, there's funny bits, but what is the, you know, is this making fun of, of religion, of prophecy, of, of, uh, um, of, um, you know, of, uh, of, you know, of the Messiah and, you know, no, no, it's not. That, that's not the force of this. That's certainly not where deep thought goes with this. So, the Messiah, the prophesied one that is going to come the, of such infinite and subtle complexity, um, that is going to solve the problem of everyone's unhappiness and going to bring about uh, peace and harmony and, uh, uh, and everything, is the earth, right? And one of you earlier on, yes... Matthew was saying this. Um, uh, somebody else was saying this, I think. Um, but anyway, sorry, Matthew, I can find your comment. I think somebody else said it too. Um, so the... Remember all that stuff in the first chapter, right? About how insignificant the earth is going, 
you know, is a you know, this one little rock going about a, an insignificant star in an unfashionable backwater, right? All that stuff, right? Um, Earth is... What is Earth? Totally insignificant, right? Um, we humans have, you know, this, like, maybe understandable, but in the big picture, sort of laughably inflated sense of the importance of the Earth, right? Uh, it's just one planet among thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands, and it's, uh, you know, we're only one species of intelligent life, and really, frankly, not that uh, intelligent, right? You know, we barely have, you know, we're not too far beyond learning the secret about banging the rocks together, right? Um, bang the rocks together, guys. Uh, anyway, um, we got that whole spiel in chapter one. And yet, it turns out that actually the earth is the Messiah, right? The earth is the galactic Messiah foretold by deep thought. We are the one. We, our planet, is the one that was coming after him, right? It is the organic computer which is going to solve the question, uh, you know, which is going to come up with the question to which the answer is 42 and solve everything, right? Um, yeah, exactly, Brandon. Mostly harmless indeed, right? Um Right. And then the Vogons destroyed it, Caden. Exactly. But let's not forget a couple things. Remember this? And then one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth suddenly realized what it was that had been going wrong all this time, and she finally knew how the world could be made a good and happy place. That This time it was right. It would work, and no one would have to get nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to a phone to tell anyone about it, a terrible, stupid catastrophe occurred, and the idea was lost forever. This is not her story. No? <laughs> Maybe it kind of turns out to have been her story, in fact, after all. Uh, because now we're being told that this, this is not a coincidence, right? Um, five minutes before the answer would have been produced by that phone call, right? Had she made the phone call, the phone call made by this uh, this girl in Rickmansworth, right? Um, uh, she... That, that was the answer, or the question, right? That was it. We're told that it was destroyed by the the planet was destroyed. You know, the computer was destroyed by the Vogons five minutes before the answer could be produced. She clearly had produced it, right? That's it. That's the answer. She is the culmination, or she is rather the expression of the culmination of this whole thing, right? Um, 
And uh, keep in mind, by the way, remember the comment that the uh, that Eddie, the Heart of Gold Computers, made about uh, about the importance of phone numbers, right? Um, uh, but anyway, um, oh, great, uh, Arthur and uh, Yana have uh, mentioned that uh, Ed, the mind of metal and wheels, has fixed the chat room, so the chat room is up uh, on the website for those of you who want to go uh, to that chat room. Um, Anyway, so uh, she is the culmination. And notice when you. Complete honesty. I didn't remember it. I mean, I remembered her. I was thinking about this, right? I was thinking about this from the beginning. Um, when we get told this story and how the the great question was going to be calculated by this computer and how it was destroyed five after 10 million years, five minutes before it was going to be produced, this was clearly, you know, this this brings up this, which just sounds like a joke at the beginning, right? You know, to just kind of set up this great and epic thing, which, oh, but, act, but that's not going to be, this is not her story, right? This is, this is not the story about that. Um, but of course, later on, we learn the context of all of this, right? That was the calculation of the great computer. What I had forgotten, what I didn't even notice, was the messianic references in that paragraph back in chapter, back on page one, right? Nearly two, the fact that it's, that it is, we are given as context, uh, you know, one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change. Um, the explicit link being made between the girl from the girl in Rickmansworth and Jesus, I, back to the, you know, when we get to the John the Baptist stuff later on, it, um, it's really hard to, uh, it's really hard to, to ignore, right? Um, yeah, and Sharon, I agree. Um, you know, Sharon is pointing out that you know the the great ain't question was the 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 question about life, the universe, and everything to which the answer is forty two. Um, Sharon points out that her idea was, you know, how to make things how, how to make things good, right? How the world could be made a good and happy place. Um, uh, you're right that that's not necessarily the same thing. Um, and that it, it does sort of deepen the irony, Sharon, I agree with that, in the sense that what the great computer, the Earth, right, produced is not just what Deep Thought promised, but much more than what Deep Thought promised, right? What the great computer produced, or almost came so very close to producing, um, was not just the thing that... Uh, what are they called? Ricky and Frankie Mouse, right? Um, not just what Fook and Lunkwill are looking for, namely a plausible sounding answer to which the question could be 42, something that will fit so that they can make bank on it in the, in the pundit, in the punditry circuits, right? On the, on the talk show circuit. Um, it's not just that, right? That's all they're interested in. Uh, because they don't care. They never cared, in fact, about the meaning of life, about making things better, right? What the computer was going to accomplish was greater 
than the, I mean, at the end of the day, the program didn't work right the first time because they were too stupid and apathetic <clears throat> actually to think through and, and, and ask the question right, right? Um, yeah, and Stephen, you're right. We don't know how she was going to phrase her idea. She may well have phrased her idea in the form of a question to which the answer was 42, for all we know. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway... I still agree, Sharon, that the glimpse that we're given here at the beginning of the book is of something further, of something greater than even what Fook and Lundquill were looking for, right? Which, again, based on what we learn about them in the deep thought story, um, uh, is hardly surprising, right? Um, and the fact that they, the two of them, that the two mice end up essentially replicating the you know, lifestyle of room fondle and magic thighs uh, shows no progress has really been made there, right? Um, and that this whole experiment, this whole, you know, epic mythic quest on the part of these hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings is going to fizzle out into absolutely nothing, but that was more or less um, that was more or less destined from the beginning, because they weren't, again, they weren't even really seeking it. They didn't really care. They just wanted to whack people on and, and then run away. Um, but um, anyway. But they're not the heroes of the story, right? And in the end, I think that we're laughing at them. Um and, you know, at ourselves and the ways in which we, you know, the, the kind of commentary on on our own desires and our own, you know, sort of cultural focus and things like that with, uh, you know, making making money and riding the gravy train for life and things like that. Um, but I cannot see the humor being directed against the question itself or... And that as much as the sort of messianic buildup sounds like a gag, right? In the end, it doesn't function as one. That if... Again, going through this carefully, uh, you know, this last time as we've been... Uh, as I've been, you know, uh, thinking it through and preparing and as, as we've been discussing it, I keep kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop on that one. Right, like okay, so when when is the joke going to be on deep thought? Right, but I don't think the joke is ever on deep thought. I mean, other than the, like the the terrible, stupid catastrophe of the destruction of the great computer five minutes before its ten million year program uh, was about to be finished. Right, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, James asks, and why were they going on vacation just as the 10 million years were just about up? Um, a great question, right? And again, certainly not even before we see them resolve the situation in the way that they end up resolving it, right? By just making up a plausible sounding answer uh, that will keep people talking for a while and, uh, you know, Frankie, baby, we are made, right? Um we can see we we already can tell right that they're not uh, uh, the great and all powerful 
ones, right? Um, yeah, how many roads must a man walk down is uh, is their uh, their fake answer, right? Um, yeah. So, this brings me back to the person who has been outside of all of this, right? The one who neither... So if we say... If we say, you know, we, we, we've identified these two different impulses within this book, right? Or rather, within really the characters of this book. That the one impulse to see the big... To have this sort of mythic reaction... Right, uh, to perceive the great thing and to experience awe and wonder at the great thing, and then the more mundane reaction, right? The I just want to hit people and run away action, the 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 you know Ford Prefect's reaction to Magrathia, um, all of that, you know Zephod Beeblebrock's most of the time as well. You know, not with Ford Prefects when, on the finding of Magrathia, but most of the rest of the time, uh, Zaphod is also pretty non-mythic in his response to things. Um, and then there's the narrator. Where does the narrator sit on this? Well, he seems to sit outside all of it, right? Um... Let's go back. Back before they land on Magrathia. Um, this passage I found very remarkable from a narrator standpoint, right? Um, I'm thinking, of course, of the sperm whale and the bowl of petunias. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough, Mike. Mike Moore points out that Zaphod's of two minds about the whole about all of it. Uh, very true, very true. Um, another thing that got forgotten was the fact that against all probability, a sperm whale had suddenly been called into existence several miles above the surface of an alien planet. And since this is not a naturally tenable position for a whale, this poor innocent creature had very little time to come to terms with its identity as a whale, before it then had to come to terms with not being a whale anymore. This is a complete record of its thought, from the moment it began its life till the moment it ended it. Ah, what's happening, it thought. Uh, excuse me, who am I? Hello? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? What do I mean by who am I? Calm down. Get a grip now. Oh, this is an interesting sensation. What is it? It's a sort of yawning, tingling sensation in my... my... well, I suppose I'd better start finding names for things if I want to make any headway in what, for the sake of what I shall call an argument, I shall call the world. So let's call it my stomach. I love how it's the nouns that the the whale hesitates over and, and has to find the right noun for things. Uh, though verbs don't seem to give him any trouble at all. Uh, but anyway, um, first thing to notice, 
everybody's forgotten about the whale, right? Except the narrator has not forgotten about the whale and doesn't let us forget about the whale. And he not only reminds us about the existence of the whale, but is able to give us a complete record of the thought of the whale from the moment it began its life until the moment after it ended it. Right? Um, how, how is he doing this? Who's this? Who's the narrator? Who's the narrator to be able to tell us what was going on in the thought of the whale? And then what do we find the whale thinking? The very first thing the whale does. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Right? Yeah, exactly, James. Um, the It's... This whole passage about the whale... Right, has this kind of you know horrible uh, dark humor to it, right? As we know, the whale is plummeting to its death, but we see it's uh, you know the the very last thing the whale thinks as it's looking at the ground, rushing up towards it, is I wonder if it will be friends with me, right? Um, but at the same time, we see again this allusion to the fact that the question about the meaning of life is fundamental to everything, right? To everyone. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Arthur, you're right. I mean, the whale never learns enough to ask this question, but the very comedy, the very, uh, the very, like, the, 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 the dark humor in the irony of the whale's thoughts as it's plummeting unknown, unknowing to itself to its death does invite the question, why am I born only to suffer and die? Absolutely. Again, he did, he doesn't know to ask that question, but it's certainly kind of a question that we can't help but ask. Right. I mean, there's, I mean, I, I, I call the, the whale passage particularly dark humor, uh, and I think it is some of the darkest humor in the whole book, in part because, again, go back to chapter one, that depiction of how generally unhappy people are, um, the attitude towards earthlings and stuff, and uh, the attitude that they have towards Arthur and not, like, complaining so much about the earth being destroyed and stuff, um, you know, get over it, Arthur. Um, there's a sense, right, in which the sperm whale is like a symbol for all living creatures, right? Uh, in which, you know, the, the book is kind of saying we're all like the sperm whale, right? Um, and yet the sperm whale, like all of us, is asking the question, right? Um, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Mike, the whale's thought is interrupted, just like the girl in Rickmansworth. Um, 
Now, the whale doesn't, unlike the girl, the whale does not have the solution, right? Um, yeah, and Stephen, great. Yeah, I agree. Stephen points out that, you know, the main thing that surprised him about the whale passage was the, you know, the revelation that, you know, whales are sentient, right? That it's even having this, uh, these, these kinds of thoughts, right? Absolutely. Again, we didn't know that, right? Nor, nor, you know, just like, just like we didn't know that about dolphins and mice. We didn't know that about whales, um, until of course the narrator reveals that to us because it's the kind of thing, uh, that narrators, that this narrator knows, right? And even more puzzlingly, though in a similar kind of way. Curiously enough, the only thing that went through the mind of the bowl of petunias as it fell was, oh no, not again. Many people have speculated that if we knew exactly why the bowl of petunias had thought that, we would know a lot more about the nature of the universe than we do now. Yes, no doubt, right? Um, Who are the many people, I wonder, I mean, many people who have read this book, perhaps. Um, That the narrator knows what is going through the mind of the bowl of petunias uh, is also somewhat surprising, right? Um, The narrator admits ignorance as to the significance of what the petunias think, right? Um, If we knew why the bowl of petunias thought that, then we would know more about the nature of the universe than we do now, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, The nature of the universe, the meaning of life. These are the big questions, right? This is like the serious theme that keeps coming up. Um, And I don't think we're... I don't think we're meant to laugh at it. I don't see... I keep... Again, I keep waiting for that to be the subject of the joke. Not just the, you know, the pretense for the joke or the the context of the joke, right? But when I keep asking myself where our laughter is being directed, I keep coming back to this... There is this underlying seriousness, right? There is that, again, there is that that response to the mythic, that response to the big thing, that sort of serious recognition of the big question and the bigness of the big question, right? Just like the serious response to the legendary planet of Magrathea, right? Um... Yeah, Tony, I also wonder why the two things called into existence were specifically Earth things. Um, Yeah, I have no idea why a sperm whale and a bowl of petunias. Uh, Exactly. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. So I'm uh, thinking about a bunch of things at once here. Uh, let's let's keep going. I want to bring this back now to the characters and the story of the characters. Because right at the same time that we're getting this mythic build-up around Magrathea, which will lead to the revelation of the story of deep thought and, uh, uh, and the true history of the Earth, um, we we get this really interesting passage, right? Trillian couldn't sleep. She sat on a couch and stared at a small cage which contained her last and only links with Earth, two white mice that she had insisted Zaphod let her bring. She had expected never to see the planet again, but she was disturbed by her negative reaction to the news of the planet's destruction. It seemed remote and unreal, and she could find no thoughts to think about it. She watched the mice scurrying round the cage and running furiously on their little plastic tread wheels till they occupied her whole attention. Suddenly she shook herself and went back onto the bridge to watch over the tiny flashing lights and figures that charted the ship's progress through the void. She wished she knew what it was she was trying not to think about. First of all, I love the parallel, right? She's watching... The mice scurrying around the cage and run, run fury, running furiously on their little plastic tread wheels, right? And her watching the mice leads her to go to the bridge and watch the tiny flashing lights and figures that charted the ship's progress through the void, right? This is this is her uh, skirt. This that, that's her cage and her little plastic tread wheels, right? Um, so the 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 parallel there is really funny. Of course, it's not yet been revealed the significance of the two white mice yet. Uh, but, uh, and when we see it from that perspective, we can begin to see the, at least a sort of an implication, right, of how they have been influencing, you know, the earth in some ways. Um, but anyway, uh, and I love it's when she, when she shakes herself, Right, as if she's trying to shake herself out of uh, some kind of state that she then goes and acts like the mice in the bridge. Um, but through all of this, this introduction to the mice, <clears throat> there's this thing. She wished she knew what it was she was trying not to think about. What is it? that she's trying not to think about. She is disturbed by her negative reaction to the news of the planet's destruction. Right? There's, there's something. There's something that she... She hasn't had any reaction to the news. It seemed remote and unreal. She is... It's like she's totally disengaged from it, and she... There's a reason for that. She feels like there's a reason for that, and she doesn't know why, right? She can't figure out what is that thing that she's trying not to think about. There's something there, but she can't figure out what it is. 
Zaphod couldn't sleep. He also wished he knew what it was that he couldn't let himself think about. For as long as he could remember, he'd suffered from a vague, nagging feeling of being not all there. Most of the time he was able to put this thought aside and not worry about it, but it had been reawakened by the sudden inexplicable arrival of Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent. Somehow it seemed to conform to a pattern that he couldn't see. There is something in Trillian's mind that she is actively trying not to think about, and she can't figure out what it is. He also, Zaphod also, has something that he won't let himself think about. As we will discover, he has apparently taken significant uh, medical steps to ensure that he doesn't, that he won't think about it. Right? Um, But it's not just that. That's relevant in itself, right? Certainly an interesting connection to the thought that is kind of there but not there in Trillian's mind. Um, But there's also that bigger sense of conforming to a pattern that he couldn't see. Why did Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent show up? Why did that happen again? How did he get connected with Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent? Yes, exactly, Stephen. The infinite improbability drive. Right? By chance, if chance you call it, as David said. Exactly. Exactly. Right? In the nearly... It was a... It was a... An act... It was an event, I should say. Of almost infinite improbability. It was almost perfectly... It was almost... An almost impossible totally random thing that happened. Except it's obviously not random, right? Almost impossible, but not random. There's a pattern. There is a pattern to events. And he can't see what it is, but he knows that the pattern is there. Uh, If only he could, you know, find the right color filter to put over it, he might be able to to identify the... uh, um, to identify the pattern, perhaps. Um, he can't see the pattern, but he knows that the pattern is there, and he can sense that there is something in the inexplicable, virtually impossible arrival of Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent that fits in this pattern, right? Ford couldn't sleep. He was too excited about being back on the road again. Fifteen years of virtual imprisonment were over, just as he was finally beginning to give up hope. Knocking about with Zaphod for a bit promised to be a lot of fun, though there seemed to be something faintly odd about his semi-cousin that he couldn't put his finger on. The fact that he had become president of the galaxy was frankly astonishing, as was the manner of his leaving the post. Was there a reason behind it? There would be no point in asking Zaphod. He never appeared to have a reason for anything he did at all. He had turned unfathomability into an art form. He attacked everything in life with a mixture of extraordinary genius and naive incompetence, and it was often difficult to tell which was which. Right? Just like you can't tell 
whether Zaphod is saying something stupid because he's being stupid or he wants you to think that he's stupid. Or remember, there's all those reasons that uh, Trillian kind of analyzes about uh, Zaphod's apparently stupid things that he says. Um, he has turned in unfathomability into an art form, right? And yet, Ford has this sense that there is a there's a story behind all this. There's a purpose for all of these things. Ford's sense of it is not in the same terms as Zaphod's, right? He's not thinking there's a pattern to all these things, though I can't see it. But it's a similar kind of impulse. All three of them are kept awake by the thought that there's something there. There is something happening. There is something uh, with... Zaphod and Ford in particular, there is some force guiding them. There is some story that is being told here that they're not in charge of, right? Um, they are not the agents, but the patients, right? They are not the doers, but the sufferers uh, of, uh, um, of all of these, of this story, right? Of these events that are occurring. Um, um so and then there's the stuff that they're also the things that they're trying not to think about right with Trillian especially but also with Zaphon um that is to say Right at the time when we start getting into all of this mythic response stuff that I was talking about in the last class, and before we get the revelation of, no, actually there was a purpose behind the Earth. The Earth was significant. Um, There really was a bigger story going on that nobody suspected, even the really knowing people like Ford Prefect, right? Um, Back on the Earth, there was the sort of shallow understanding of things, shallow provincial understanding of things that most people had, and then there was the wider view that Ford Prefect had as an alien, right? Somebody who had been around, who had been a hitchhiker around the galaxy, um, somebody who was a, a, a really hoopy frood, um, and so he knew what was the real score, right? He could see beyond just the Earth, and so therefore could put the Earth in its place as, you know, an insignificant planet around, uh, uh, you know, in, a, in an unfashionable backwater of the galaxy. And then, as we move on in the story, we find there is a layer outside that, right? In which, no, actually, Ford wasn't right about that. It wasn't insignificant. What the narrator said at the beginning was uh, not right, right? Or, again, at least the things that he was implying were insufficient, right? That That was not... In fact, the whole story. Yeah, Mike suggests provincial, pangalactic, pandimensional, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, that is interesting, Mike, thinking about it that way. Um, Yeah, when we look at things from a pandimensional perspective, it looks entirely different. Turns out that there is a pattern. There is a story. 
right? That the entire Earth was in fact a an organic computer working to produce the ultimate answer, working to 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 solve uh, the ultimate question that everybody has, even sperm whales who are just created, um, you know, a couple miles above an alien planet. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, Arthur sleeps very well because he was tired. Um, and I, you know, Kat Sass made this comment on uh, on Twitter, and I had been thinking exactly the same thing. Of course, we just talked about it, well, just a couple months ago, uh, in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, it is really funny that uh, Douglas Adams makes exactly the same joke that uh, Tolkien does, right? With in the, in the House of Tom Bombadil, where you've got the three sleepers who have their dreams and who have their insomniac things, and then you've got the fourth one who sleeps like a log. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I, I was I was very amused by that pattern too, and I, I noticed that Cat uh, uh, was talking about that on Twitter. Um, yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, so the question that I keep having then as we work towards the end is so okay, what is all this? Where do we end up? I've been asking this question from the beginning, right? Where do we end up? Where is our point of view? Um, where are we being where are we being pushed in the end? Um well, we learn a little bit more about Zaphod and his plans. So let's follow those a little bit. And then you stole the heart of gold to come and look for it with. This is, of course, Ford talking about the discovery of Magrathea. I stole it to look for a lot of things. A lot of things? said Ford in surprise. Like what? I don't know. What? I don't know what I'm looking for. Why not? Because. Because. I think it might be because if I knew, I wouldn't be able to look for them. What, are you crazy? It's a possibility I haven't ruled out yet, said Zaphod quietly. I only know as much about myself as my mind can work out under its current conditions, and its current conditions are not good. Right? Um, Zaphod's being out of touch with the story. His awareness that there is a pattern but not being able to see the pattern gets comically expanded in his own life, right? Where he knows there is a pattern, like he is the author of a pattern of events in his life that he does he's not privy to, right? Um, I only know as much about myself as my mind can work out under its current conditions. Why are its current conditions not good? Because he altered his own brain, right? I love how he carved his initials in his own synapses. And then there's the heart of gold, which is the only, which turns out to have been, that was why he ran for president in the first place, to steal the heart of gold. The heart of gold is the center of the whole, whatever it was, this secret story of which Zaphod is the protagonist, but which he doesn't know uh, about, right? The heart of gold is the, the center of all that. So the heart of gold fled on silently through the night of space, now on conventional photon drive. Its crew of four were ill at ease, knowing that they had been brought together not of their own volition, 
or by simple coincidence, but by some curious perversion of physics, as if relationships between people were susceptible to the same laws that govern the relationships between atoms and molecules. So, the heart of gold, which uh, perverts physics, right, when it goes into extreme improbability mode, but, you know, all of the absurd things that pop into being or the uh, bizarre things that were happening to uh, to Ford and Arthur's bodies when they first came into the to the heart of gold not to mention of course the uh, their location in the first place um, and what we keep seeing apart from those other few you know on the one hand the depiction of the action of the improbability drive would appear to be, Random. Randomness, right? Like, why have you stopped turning into a penguin in that kind of thing? Um, but yet, the effect that it continues to have in the story is the opposite of randomness, right? The, the creation of that, the, the weaving of that pattern that Zephod nose is there but can't see, right? That's why he's so perturbed, right, about their showing up. Um, and it's, of course, the heart of gold that is the instrument of making them show up. As if the relationships between people were susceptible to the same laws that govern the relationships between atoms and molecules. Are, is this whole universe both the matter and the people and the connections between the people? Is all of this just part of the story that is being woven, um, and the heart of gold is playing a significant role in that. Um, think about the the kind of coincidence. Think about that Islington flat, right? Think about the party at the Islington flat, um, and the sort of galactic significance of that particular party at that particular uh, Islington flat, right? Uh, not only were Arthur and Zaphod both there uh, sort of fighting over Trillian, um, but F- Lunquil and Fook were there, right? The two white mice. They're Trillian's white mice. Uh and you know, and the significance of her phone number being the the you know being exactly the same as the probability factor of uh, a ship coming along and rescuing somebody in the thirty seconds uh, that they're floating around in space. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, it's. There is clearly something going on, right? Um, and it's funny because for a while in this story, it was not at all clear that that was going to be the case. <clears throat> from the opening chapters of the book, it seems like that, you know, that, that sort of shift from, and Mike, I'll adopt your terminology, that shift from the provincial viewpoint to the pangalactic viewpoint, right, um, that we get 
at the beginning with the revelation of Ford Prefect and the coming of the Vogon Destructor Fleet and then, you know, the Vogons as the bridge to the wider galaxy, right, and everything else. Um, this just sort of seems to be starting off by making fun of the, you know, sort of the Earth in general and that kind of provincial outlook and, you know, the whole idea of kind of making the end of the world into not, you know, the this huge solemn culmination of a whole story, but, uh, but, but rather ironically and comically merely the launching off point from which the story begins. Um, and yet that's not, that has not turned out to be the kind of story that it is. It's not just sort of this galactic lark kind of making fun of things and uh and it's what it has certainly not been is like a random bunch of hitchhiking across the galaxy um you know how to hitchhike across the galaxy on 24 altarian dollars a day or whatever and less than 30 all or you know however much money it is um the sort of you know carefree attitude of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, no particular destination, just out to see the world, right? No plot, no story, just, you know, going out and having fun and drinking some pangalactic gargle blasters along the way. That's not this book at all, it turns out, right? And the further, the deeper we get into it, the more we begin to see that not only is there this implication that 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 the story has the plot has more to it than that even more than the characters and maybe the narrator even suspected at the beginning but I'm not sure about that last one um certainly the characters um but even the the very universe itself right it turns out that of course i mean think from the perspective of you know, the the story of deep thought and the revelations about the earth and everything that we've learned and the whole messianic stuff and the meaning of life. Think from that perspective. Think back to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, the book. Um, the whole concept of here's how to, you know, here's where you can buy the best drinks and, and you know, You know all the all the other the, the kinds of things that the uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide tells us about. Um, it's seems kind of simplistic now. Seems kind of shallow. Seems kind of missing the point. Again, from a pangalactic standpoint, that seems to be. You can see why it sells so much better than the Encyclopedia Galactica, right? And yet, from a pan-dimensional standpoint, it's kind of missing the point, right? Um, yeah. All right. Um, I think I'm going to let you go there. Um, I'll let you go a little bit early tonight. Um, we will look at the ending of the book and the semi-resolution of some of these stories. I want to see where we... End. The end of this book is not very satisfying, and it certainly does not tie things up very thoroughly. Um, and that's not surprising, of course. The original uh, 
radio broadcast was a much longer arc story, so you know that this book is only ever part of that. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, um, it's but still we'll kind of look at where the where the book ends up bringing us here by the end uh, and see if we can come to some conclusions about that. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. I'm looking forward to uh, be having a good time down at TextMoot next week, and uh, I'll be back the week after that. So we'll have uh, my plan is for two more sessions. So we'll have our next session on the 17th of January and then our final session on the 24th of January after that. Then we'll probably take uh, probably one week off and then begin... um, we're going to be beginning the War of the Ring volume. Gosh, what is this? Eight now of uh, the history of Middle Earth, um, the last volume of the history of the War of the Rings. Uh, we're going to be starting that next. So, uh, and we'll be we'll probably be getting, be beginning that the first week of uh, of February. So, thanks very much, everybody, uh, and I will see you guys in a fortnight. Bye. <laughs>